Thank you for your amazing encouragement. You have the gift of encouragement, brother. And uh, I'm very grateful for that. Um, yeah, what Ian knows a little bit about how busy this week has been. Um, in all sorts of ways, I'm sure all of you have busyness in different ways. This week's been particularly busy for me. Um, we've also had an election this week. Um, and who knew um, what, what was going to happen? I stayed up on the Thursday night. And then I had quite a long business meeting on Friday in work, so that wasn't the best idea. But it was so gripping. Um, it was interesting seeing Nigel Farage say um, how much the Poles had got it wrong. And we weren't quite sure whether he meant Polish people or um, the Poles with P-O-double-L. Can, can I say that? That sounded a good joke in my head. Um, anyway, Nigel Farage doesn't um, get everything right. Um, interesting to see the carnage of lead, three leaders resigning on, uh, on the Friday and uh, who, who expected all of that to happen um, the, the fact that we've had an election this week is very relevant to what we're going to think about today we're continuing our studies in Ephesians Emma read to us from verse 17 I said to him during the week that um, I, I have the best job in the world uh, even though often it feels very busy. The, this passage in front of us here is, I, I cannot emphasise how profoundly important this passage is. I, I hope that this Sunday is, is a Sunday that you never forget. If, if there's a, there are all kinds of important passages in the Bible. I always try and say this every week in different ways. But this passage is one that is truly uh, life changing so in the light of the fact that we've had an election this week my, my question for you is is it possible for people to change is it possible for people to change almost everything we do in life is aimed at change our education system is all about change little nippers come into reception class at the start of their life and the whole process is geared on delivering them out into adulthood at the end. It is all about change, isn't it? Our political system is all about change. The election that we've just had this week has seen tens, hundreds even, of people on our TV, screen, TV screens, every one of them having ideas and thoughts on how can we improve things? How can things change for the better? But in the end, change is not about education or politics. It is really about people, isn't it? How on earth do people change? Is it possible for education or for politics to actually change people's hearts? Can you change people by altering their environment? Or is it actually the case that in order to change people's environment, you have to change their hearts first. I want to be really clear at the start, I make no apology for this. Changing people is not a political issue or an educational issue. It is a religious issue. Changing people's hearts is a spiritual issue. It is a faith issue. 
And that is interesting, isn't it? Because our, model, our modern culture often says, you can have whatever faith you like, as long as you keep it private. And don't talk to anybody else about it. What we're, want, what we're wanting, we're told, is a neutral culture, a secular society, a, a kind of non-religious framework. We need science and reason, and religion actually closes people's minds rather than expanding them and opening them up. The problem with that assertion is that that is not a neutral idea, is it? And as soon as someone says, faith is bad and we're better off without it, they're actually making a value statement, not a scientific statement. They're actually making a religious statement. Our society is really saying, don't bring that values up round here. That's what our society is saying. We don't want to hear about values. But making that kind of statement is a value, isn't it? I think I want to suggest to you as well that our modern culture is also a bit confused in another way. Our modern culture will tell you you can't tell anyone else how to live their lives. That's an attack on their freedom of choice and incredibly arrogant. And what we end up with then is millions of people who all feel strongly you all feel a little bit anxious, if we're honest, but none of us have any rationale or basis for changing anything. There is no authority or conviction. Anyone who tells someone else how to live is being arrogant. Well, we're continuing our studies here in Ephesians. I think Paul, in the first century, lived in a very complex culture as ours is, a very pluralistic culture as ours is and I I don't think you could read words that are more relevant these words are 2,000 years old and they could have been written yesterday I think the reason for that as a Christian man is that they come to us from God himself and they're timeless I I really pray today that these words will uh, get under your skin and provoke you and uh, excite you and hopefully motivate you. We called our series Motivated. Um, So let's have a look. Um, The Christian gospel is breathtaking in the claims that it makes. And uh, if change is going to happen, would it it help us to have the lights off to it or not? It doesn't make any difference, does it? You can see the screen a little bit better. If, if change is going to happen, I, w- I want to suggest to you that four things need to be in place. First of all, you need to know that change is necessary. Secondly, you need to define or be able to define what change actually looks like. Thirdly, you need to know how to actually go about the process of change. And fourthly, I think it really helps if you have some examples of what it looks like in practice. From verse 17, 
right through almost to the end of, uh, well, the middle of chapter 5, Paul is doing for us exactly those four things. He's reminding the Ephesian believers why change is necessary. He's reminding them what it looks like. He's telling them how to do it. And then he gives them examples of what it looks like in practice. Simples. Couldn't be more clear, could it? Well, it might take us three months to get through all those four things, so we'll try and make a start and um, we'll see where we end up. We might get the first three done. Change is necessary. In the previous section, Paul has been talking about unity. It actually says that in my Bible at the top of chapter four. He spent the first three chapters talking about the Christian gospel and then in chapter four he says, I urge you then to live a life worthy of the calling you've received and the way he frames that is unity. He is aiming, the gospel is aiming at putting people in a right relationship with God and then in a right relationship with each other. There's a corporate dimension to where Paul is going with his teaching. He's not looking to pick off lots of different individuals. He's looking for them to be built up in Christ into one purposeful, united corporate group of people. He's been talking about maturity and growth and togetherness. This is his big theme. How can people get along? How can people who are different be brought together into unity? He never anywhere denies diversity. He celebrates, in fact, the the, the fact that everyone's different. But his aim is to bring these disparate, different people into a united, loving community. So this section begins with a little word, so. So I tell you this. This section that we're going to look at from here on in is really Paul's explanation of how all the stuff he's already been saying can happen. I want you to be united. Let me show you how that can happen. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Change has come. You can't live anymore like the surrounding culture lives. You can't be, as Christian people, what you used to be. Things are different now. Change has come. You can't be what you used to be anymore. It won't work. There'll be no unity. There'll be no corporate group of Christian believers if you continue living like you used to live. Change has come. I I want you to notice here something important. That Paul here is assuming that there's a massive difference between the culture they're part of and their new status as Christian believers. can Can I be blunt with you? One of the biggest issues, I think, in our churches today is that there is no difference. There is no difference between unbelievers and believers Christianity is seen in our modern culture as one choice among many 
And there isn't that much of a difference between the church and the surrounding culture. Non-Christians are nice, and Christians are nice. What's the big deal? That isn't where Paul goes here. He says, I tell you this, even I insist on it. With God's own authority, you can't live like you used to live. He assumes that there is an underlying difference between believers and unbelievers. Paul, in the first century, thinks in terms of the classes of people that are there in the first century. Paul himself was a Jewish man. Um, And I think Paul thinks in the categories of Jews, who were very religious, Gentiles, who were quite unreligious, and then he introduces a third group that he calls Christian. And he says, here's a third group that are not Jewish or Gentile. This is a new group, a dynamic new group, called Christians. They are not religious in a Jewish sense. They are not pagan like Gentiles are. They are radically different in their relationship with God and their relationship with one another. There's a massive difference. Paul here isn't being down on this ethnic group called Gentiles. He's not Nigel Farage. He's not picking up on a group called Gentiles and saying, don't be like that, that must be like over there. He says in chapter 2 that this group that he's writing to were Gentiles. They are Gentiles, they're not Jews, many of them. So they come from this group called Gentiles, the pagan, unbelieving group, what he's saying to them is, you can't live like that anymore. The difference here is down to their underlying motivations. What Paul is saying here is that the approach to life that they used to have, the frame, their worldview, the framework that they lived their life by, is shot to pieces. It is empty, futile. It has not been effective. It hasn't delivered results. A pagan or a godless life, Paul says here, is utterly futile. It may look like some of the same things are going on, but the worldview is utterly futile. We might say pointless. Let me... um, Let me have a look at this sentence with you. This is a very complex sentence. Let's just read um, the end of verse 17 and and down. Uh, Paul says, You must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. It's a complex sentence that because he he seems to start at the end and then work backwards. So let let me, I I tend to think in pictures, so let, let me show you how this goes together. Paul starts by saying, that the thinking 
of the Gentile, the pagans, is futile. And then he describes what he means by that. In the next verse he says that they are darkened in their understanding. The light's gone off. And he says that they're separated from the life of God. From Paul's perspective, God is the great creator of all human life. These pagan Gentiles somehow have become cut off from the very God who has given them life. Their minds have become darkened and they're separated from the life source. That's what he means by futility or pointless thinking. But then he gives a reason even for that, working back with some more. He says, this is because of the ignorance that is in them. He's not pulling any punches, is he? (laughs) So he he talks here about a kind of internal ignorance. He's not being rude here. This, This is a very bleak picture, isn't it, of human nature. There is ignorance inside them And then he says that that has happened because their hearts were hard. That's his flow of logic. You get that? Their hearts are hard. That leads to ignorance on the inside. And that leads them to be darkened in the understanding, separated from the life of God. Their thinking is futile. Paul's point here, and I I want you to get this, is that this is not something that has just happened to them. This is not something that has been forced on them. This isn't the fault of politicians. This isn't the fault of the environment. This isn't the fault of a bad education. This is a choice, Paul says. They have decided in their hearts to push God out of their lives and experience. These are people who've decided to live their lives as if God didn't exist. They've decided to live as if God were of no value or consequence. And as Paul says, as a result of that choice, these things follow. Paul's point is that when we do this, we may as well pull the light cord and turn the light off in our own hearts. Actually, human beings cannot understand any significant reality if we shut the ultimate reality or creator out of that picture. Nothing ultimately makes any sense when the ultimate reality is pushed out of our lives. One writer says this, the more we deny truth, the less capable we become in understanding and apprehending truth. The more we push God away, the less we really know. Some of you will be ahead of me. Paul says this elsewhere. Um, Some of you will be familiar with a very significant passage in the letter Paul wrote to the Roman 
Romans, church in Rome. Um, Romans chapter 1. Paul says there, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. It's a very scathing indictment on human nature. There is a blindness that is within us, not outside of us. One writer says, the light has gone out in the seat of Gentiles' understanding so that they are no longer capable of apprehending the ultimate truth. Paul says even more here, is is it possible to say more than that? I should stop there, shouldn't he? He says even more than that, because in verse 19, he says, having lost all sensitivity. To shut God out doesn't just affect our thinking, it also affects our ethics. One translation says that these Gentiles are past feeling. The sense here is that there is, there is no sensitivity anymore to what is morally appropriate or not. There's no anchor. There is nothing in their lives that provides a basis for restraint. When God is excluded, there's no basis anymore for saying that something is right or wrong, ultimately. Past feeling, no sensitivity, no moral restraint. What is really scary is that is is the fact of a lack of self-awareness. To be separated from God and not to be worried about that is an awful state to be in, isn't it? To be unconcerned about that kind of state of affairs is actually a sign of ultimate blindness. And the angst that comes with this is heartbreaking, isn't it? We are so very busy. Aren't we? We try to change. We work so hard. But we don't actually seem to get anywhere at all. We say to each other, how are you? I'm really busy. Sometimes we should say, why? Why why was I busy? Don't know. (laughs) Don't know. We live and breathe and work but we don't actually get anywhere substantial at all. There's no sense of accomplishing 
anything. This is the picture that Paul's painting here. Futility, pointlessness. You live, you work, and then you die. Darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God, having lost all sense of anchor. Paul says more here. He says that they have given themselves over to sensuality. What, what do we do with the sense of angst that we feel? The sense of pointlessness that we feel? Well, if, if, there's, if, if there's no point to anything, we may as well feel good. We, we might as well have a good time while it's pointless. Is that not how the world approaches life? Sensuality. That, that's equivalent, really, to a lack of shame. It describes a way of life that openly flaunts itself with no regard whatsoever for the feelings of other people or any regard for any sense of what is morally appropriate. This is the kind of attitude that says, you can't stop me. Have you ever heard of human rights? This is my human right. I can live my life my way and you can't stop me. Is that not the cry of our society? Paul talks about indulging in every kind of impurity. Indulging the pursuit of pleasure to escape the emptiness. Dancing around things that seem to gratify the senses but don't deliver true fulfilment. He actually says that very thing at the end of that verse with a continual lust for more. In the Greek, I think that's one word, greed. Having lost all moral restraint, they've given themselves over, and it never satisfies, and there's a greed there. Human desire is so insatiable, isn't it? Every new and exciting thing eventually loses its shine and something bigger and better, more daring, more exciting has to take its place. One writer says, when we're greedy, no matter what we have, we want more. When we're greedy, no matter what we have, we want more. What is Paul saying here? He is describing a pagan culture that has shut God out and that has basically condemned itself to never being satisfied with anything ever again. Jesus himself said, What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? It's the same truth. Paul says here that people are given over to this. There's nothing else to live for. This is the trajectory of human nature. If we shut God out of our lives, two things happen. We become detached from ultimate reality. And we cannot see things as God sees them. Our ability to think and our moral judgment both suffer. And Paul uses some shocking language here. We become both ignorant in a way and insensitive in another way. Rationality and morality 
are both sacrificed when we decide to live as if God didn't exist. To shut God out is to live in the dark. It is not possible to make sense of life until we engage with the amazing God who made it. I think often we find ourselves wanting the effect of God being there while wishing he didn't exist. Does that make sense? We want to live in a world where love matters. We want to live in a world where justice prevails. We don't want to live in a world in which God intrudes on our selfishness. What basis can there be for either logic or love outside of God's existence? Paul is really explaining here why change is necessary. Don't forget, that's still point one. He's trying to say to them, you won't want to change until you see that change is utterly, fundamentally necessary. He's wanting to wake them up. Tim Keller uh, recounts a story uh, that Becky Manley Pippet tells in one of her books. Some of you will know her, American. Did, did some of you go to a ladies' conference where she spoke? Uh, I'm, I, I think she came to the UK and some of you went. Anyway, she, when she was younger, she attended a class in college that was run by a professor of psychology. And uh, basically, this professor, very capable chap was teaching people how to understand human nature I think with a view to perhaps uh, counselling people and helping them and this guy went through a case study with them and he, he tried to explain how some poor chap's life had been destroyed and descended into chaos uh, I think it had involved him being an alcoholic, his marriage had broken up and this professor of psychology was very pleased to tell the class that this was because of the guy's mixed up background this poor fellow had had issues in his upbringing and it all went back to his background and he kind of presented his findings to the class and said this is why Becky Manley Pippert put her hand up in the class and asked a question you've explained how this happened what we want to know is what is the solution How could things have been different for this guy? What did this man need for change to happen? And she recounts in a book that the lecturer said, oh, you need a different course for that. You need to go to a different course for that. I have no idea. I can tell you why, but I have no idea how to fix it. Psychology can only go so far. The truth is that science can only go so far we can see things and observe things but that will only get us to the end of verse 19 you only have to read the paper today and if you get to the end of verse 19 you've done what that psychology professor did you can see what's happening you can understand to some degree why it's happening the end of verse 19 is pretty miserable isn't it what then Paul says, you, you, however, 
You didn't know you didn't come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. The thing that connects verse 19 to verse 20 is faith, isn't it? You could stop if you want at the end of verse 19. Paul says that's not the end of the story. These Christians in Ephesus, he's writing here to Christian believers, all of this stuff, this is why you need to change, but you can change because you did not come to know Jesus in that way. My second um, point then was, if anyone's got to change, you need to define what change looks like. What, what Paul has described here is a world with no God. He, he has described how we live in our world to some degree or other when God is pushed to the margins of our lives. We push God away thinking that we know best. And yet that's not the end of the story. Because the God who made us also pursues us. Verse 20 is an incredibly hope-filled verse, isn't it? You didn't, you didn't come to know Christ that way. And here is where Christianity makes some incredible claims. This is the place where Christianity separates itself from every other religion in the world. And this is why every effort to achieve change in this world always involves some kind of scheme or system or ism or ology all religions work this way all of the founders of the great world religions are basically saying here are the principles for you to live by I'll give you the principles it's up to you to put them into practice in, I, I know that world religious leaders are very well respected but in a sense you could take the leader out of the equation and the principles would still be there the founder is not the most important thing the most important thing are the, is the system the, 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 that, that's the kind of crucial thing but in Christianity it is completely different we are not offered a system or an ism or an ology in Christianity we are introduced to a living person Paul says here surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is where where, where is that truth it's not written down in a book somewhere you won't find it on Wikipedia the truth is summed up in a living person Jesus Christ in other words everything that you need to know is summed up not in a system but in a person 
if you want to know what true human beings should look like you can't read about that in a book the place you can read about it in a book but the book you read it in points to a person Jesus he is the ultimate human God with human skin on him the task here is not a system but a living breathing person Christianity is historic Jesus Christ the son of God has invaded human history he has lived and walked and taught and died and risen again here on our planet every kind of temptation was thrown at him and he transcended all of them even his enemies couldn't find fault with him even Pilate thought he was innocent and had to wash his hands and say be it on your own head I can't find anything wrong with him even the criminal who died next to him said to the other one who was swearing his head off do you not fear God? can you not see that this man's different? And he turned to Jesus on the cross and said, Lord, remember me. And Jesus said to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. Paul speaks of a body of truth that is summed up in a person, Jesus. He is the light of the world. The sense of this verse here is that all truth, all ultimate truth is summed up in Jesus he isn't like an optional extra he's not like a brand of toothpaste and you can pick a stripy one or a different one everything that is real is summed up in him if you miss him you miss everything he is the source of truth he is the cause of it he is the life giving power within it he is the content of it. He's the end of it. He's the beginning of it. He is both the example of it and the power source of it. You could say Jesus is both the pattern and the battery that drives it. It is not ethics, philosophy or psychology, although it includes all of that. It is Christ, a living person. Can you remember what Paul said in chapter 1? Just flip back two pages. When he wrote to these Gentiles, formerly pagans, and he said to them in chapter 1, verse 13, and you, you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who was a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those with God's possession to the praise of his glory. You also, he's saying to them, in chapter 2 he says, you were dead and God has made you alive. This is what you were. You, how can you possibly live like that anymore? Things are different now. How do you define change? What does change look like? Biblically, here's the definition of change. Do you want to know how, what change looks like? 
The idea is to be like him. That's it. It's not complex. The idea in Christianity is to grow increasingly like him. He is the pinnacle. And that is the trajectory that these Gentiles are on. They were dead, they were dark, they were blind, they were ignorant, they were insensitive, there was no moral restraint. Suddenly, bang, they met Jesus and the whole trajectory changes and now their lives are on a different curve. Why is it? Why is it that our churches don't look anything different to our culture? This is radical, isn't it? This, this, this is like talking to my arms aren't wide enough. This, this is what unbelievers are. This is what believers are over here somewhere, a million light years over there. Paul says, you however did not come to know Christ that way. Because of Jesus, anyone can change. Everyone can change. You can't, I can't blame our circumstances, our environment, our background, our health. You are not locked in. The the past is not a prison. You, You cannot stand before Christ one day and say, it was too hard for me. You have the same saviour as everyone else. You have the same Bible as everyone else. You can't blame your environment. Christ has come so that change is gloriously possible for you. And the end game here is that you move from not knowing him to being like him. What could be more glorious? My third point. Hey, I've got a little bit of time. Third point is how does change happen? I thought I'd give you a little picture. I was looking for a picture of a bridge and I thought this one would do. We've seen that change is necessary. We've seen that change is all bound up in Jesus being the definition of that. Paul here explains to us very amazingly how change works in our lives. Let's just read again verse 22 to 24. He says, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul here gives a blueprint but if you've got your own Bible, I mean, don't do this in the church Bibles, but if you've got your own Bible, get a fluorescent pen 
and highlight this verse. Put big stars around it, photocopy it and stick it on your wall at home. This, these verses are crucial. I don't know if there's a more important concept for us to grasp than what is found here. Let me try and explain what this verse is saying and then we'll, we'll, we'll try and tease it out next week even more. Change does need to happen. It's summed up in Jesus. But how does it happen? In these two verses, there are three things Paul says. And that's why I've highlighted them as a bridge. Did you notice the three verbs? He says, you've got to put something off. He says, you've got to put something on. And in the middle of those two things, he talks about being made new. So, there's three elements here. So, let's call this the great bridge of change. Okay? Here's the bridge. I want you to notice that two of the elements involve you doing something. Putting off and putting on. That's the command. The middle one is something that happens to you. Very interesting. Passive. Put off, put on and be made new in the attitude of your minds. So here it is. Put off your old self, put on the new self, be made new in the attitude of your mind. In Christianity, change always involves being saved from something in order to be saved to something. You get that? It is not just a negative thing. It's not just a positive thing. It's being saved from something to something. That's the kind of bridge. Interestingly, we'll get on to this next week, but from verse 25, Paul gives a list of examples. That was point four. We won't get to that. But he doesn't just say, don't tell lies. What does he say? Put off falsehood. Put on truth. You've got to give this up and do this instead. It's kind of a replacement therapy. It's not um, one or the other. Both things. Putting off, putting on. The metaphor is a clothing one, isn't it? You know, it, it, Paul's almost saying, take the old clothes off and put the new clothes on. But it's more complex than a clothing because how do you put on a person? <laughs> you can't go to Primark and buy a new person. They don't hang on a coat hanger for five ninety nine. It'd be cheap about prime art, wouldn't it? Two ninety nine, come and buy the new you. That would be good to buy, wouldn't it? He, Paul says, take off the old you and put on the new you. I want to say four very quick things um, and then we're done. And then we'll, we'll carry on with the examples next time. Let me say this. Number one, Paul is not suggesting here that we're trying to earn something. I want to really underline this for you. Many people, many Christian people even, live their lives as if what they're doing is a way of earning brownie points with God. Oh, God must think I'm so sincere. I always try and do what God wants me to do. I really hope in the end that he'll like me. 
That is fear-motivated obedience. God doesn't like me. I'm really going to try and impress him so he does like me. That is a form of slavery. That is not what Paul's talking about here. You are not trying to change. Paul's assumption is you have changed. Do you get the difference? This is not trying to change. Paul is saying when you came to faith in Christ, when you came to know Jesus, your whole status changed. You've come into God's family. You've been forgiven. You're on the way to heaven. Your whole status as a person has changed. Paul's argument here is now, go and be who you are. You're not trying to earn it. It's been given to you. Now, go and be who you have become. Your identity is completely and radically new. Christianity is never based on fear. It is always based on you becoming the person that God has already made you. Do you get that? You can't let him down. You can't cause him to sort of take the hook of you. Jesus has come into the world to save you, to change you, to bring you into his family. What Paul's argument here is, you didn't come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that's in Jesus. Put off the old, put on the new. Be who you now are. This is a call to intentional behaviour. You can't any longer be what you were. God has changed you. So be who you are. Live it out. Don't let the old you dominate your thinking anymore. The old person is dead. Condemned. Heading for destruction. Paul says it here at the end of verse 22. The old person is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. The old person is rotten and confused in the dark, morally bankrupt. Let it go. Don't defend that or be that anymore. Be the new person that God has made you in Christ. Have you heard of um, the chap in Christian history called Augustine? Um, famous Christian in history. He lived a pretty immoral life. And then he became a Christian and he met one of his old prostitute friends walking down the road who tried to get him to come home. Come on. And he turned around and the person said, come on, what's the matter with you? It's me. It's me. And Augustine famously walked off in the other direction and said, yes, but it's not me. That's not me anymore. That was me. But that's the old me. I'm a new person now. That's exactly what Paul's saying here. Look at what Paul says in verse 24. To put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. It's interesting that past tense. What is Paul saying there? 
you, you, you've already changed status. God has created you in Christ to be a new person. Live that out in your life. You're not trying to earn it. You're trying to be it. Secondly, at the bottom there, it is not all down to you. Um, there are some Christians who put all the folks on the left-hand side of this bridge and they'll keep telling you, you need to be putting that off, you need to be not doing that, I'm not doing that, I'm not doing that, I'm not doing that, put it off, put it off, put it off, put it off. They've forgotten the other side of the bridge. They're very focused on the negatives. We might describe that as a kind of legalism. This is attacking sin with human willpower. I'm going to put it off. I'm going to put it off. I'm determined. I'm going to put it off. I'm going to put it off and conquer this. I want to suggest to you that one of the problems when we attack the sins in our lives in that way is that they always tend to break out even worse in a different way. What we're trying to do is modify behaviour rather than dealing with the underlying causes. Are you familiar with that very fascinating passage in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 11 I think, where Jesus is talking about demons and he, and he talks about someone having one demon and the demon leaves and goes off and then comes back and finds and the person's life is like a room clean, well swept and seven more demons come back and move in it's a very enigmatic passage but I I think Jesus is talking about this kind of truth if if you're it's almost like one of those fairground things you know where the little kind of caterpillars pop up and you've got a hammer and as they pop up you've got to like knock them down and the more you knock them down the more of them come up That, that, that is like what it is dealing with sin you knock one down and seven more pop up you deal with sin in this area and it comes back with a vengeance to bite you. I want to suggest that it doesn't all depend on you. There is a need to put off, but that isn't the whole story. Opposite truth, though, thirdly, it isn't either or down to God. This is an opposite truth, isn't it? So the idea here is, God does it all, I don't need to do anything. Just name it and claim it, believe it, and everything's going to go fine. This group is wanting to put everything on, but not really wanting to do any putting off. (laughs) Or rather, this group is wanting God to do all the putting on. Uh, Some of you uh, young whippersnappers, aren't you? uh, I, I remember as a young Christian there was a movement of Christianity that had a slogan and it, and it, it was something like let go and let God and it sounds great that doesn't it 1970s let go and let God I mean that sounds fantastic bold faith just give up and let God do it all I, I, I mean I, I want to call that laziness not legalism 
One of the great challenges in our modern culture is the desire for things to be instant. We want it now. Oh, who was it who sang that song? I want it all. I want it now. That, that's our culture, isn't it? Some more time afterwards. Theologically, this is reflected in many churches in the idea that somehow we can have the promises of heaven now. Victory now. Freedom from any kind of effort now. No stress or anxiety now. The danger of this kind of teaching is you have a bit of struggle in your life and you suddenly think, I'm a Christian. I thought Christians were meant to be victorious all the time. Doesn't feel like that to me. This is not how life works, let alone Christianity. Imagine racking up at Manchester United and saying, who's, who's that Dutch guy? Imagine, oh, it's not um, David Moyes anymore, is it? Louis Van, Van Gaal, whatever his name is, Dutch guy. I played in the park last week and scored a couple of goals. Can I have a game on Saturday? And it, you wouldn't even get to see the guy, would you? Life doesn't work that way. It takes effort and training and application, sometimes sacrifice and discipline, and no small degree, at times, of pain. The problem here is that the first group are aiming at perfect behaviour, and the second group are aiming at perfect peace. And the first group get depressed and guilty if they make a mistake, The second group gets fed up and gives up if there's any kind of struggle. Can you relate to those? It's not hard to kind of fall off one side or the other. Christianity is not perfectionism on the one hand and it isn't plastic pretense on the other. It takes effort It is not all down to you, but neither is it all down to God. It takes effort. Can can I be blunt here? Some of you, some of you wonder, why am I not making progress in my Christian life? But you're not willing to put any effort in. We've said it already today. You have the same Saviour as everyone else. You have the same Bible as everyone else. You have the same Holy Spirit that everyone else has access to. You can't make progress unless you're willing to put off and put on. There is no shortcut our culture will tell us all, always take a shortcut you don't have to be serious about this kind of stuff the Bible has this wonderful balance in it doesn't it as Paul says here you have been and you are being taught but it will make no, it will make no difference if you don't put into practice the things that you hear Fourthly, very quickly, this is the last one, and then we're done. Number four, the battle is fought in the mind. 
we've already seen Paul say, when hearts are hard, the mind becomes darkened. Here, he reverses that. And where hearts are soft and teachable, pliable, the light comes on. To be made new in the attitude of your minds. I sometimes wonder when we're trying to apply ourselves in our Christian lives to progress that we attack in the wrong areas. Uh, Tom Wright, a famous British uh, writer and minister, tells the story of him and his wife going to rent a new flat. Um, I'm not sure where it was in the country, but they rang their estate agent every day for like a week. And every day the staff told them a different story. And they're like, what is going on with this firm? Yesterday they told us one thing. Yes, today it's like a different story. And this went on day after day. Sometimes they phoned more than once in a day. They got given different information. Promises are made and then broken. They get into their wits end. It's like, the co- does this company want to rent this flat or not? And then they thought, let's go to the office and we'll sort this out once and for all. And then they realised what the problem was. The owner of the estate agent was a bully. They actually had a sneaky feeling that he was an alcoholic and the poor staff were being yelled at. There was no process. The paperwork was chaos. This fellow was just yelling at people, changing his mind every day. They didn't know what to say to customers. It took them all afternoon to sit this guy down and actually force him to go through all the paperwork so that they could get the keys and move in to the flat that they wanted to move into. Sometimes in our lives it's like that. We're trying to deal with the people answering the phone and we haven't realised that behind that there's a more fundamental issue and it's the issue of how our desires work. If change is going to happen in our lives, we have to learn to think. Which is very interesting, just as a little aside, because the criticism levelled by our culture at Christianity often is, you become a Christian, you might as well throw your brain away. Because who believes in fairy tales from the past? You, you, science, that's what you need. Don't be closing your mind. You want to expand your mind. People will tell you that faith is stupid. Paul says the exact opposite here. Your mind needs to be expanded, open. He says your mind needs to be renewed. This couldn't be more exciting and positive, could it? Pagans run into sin as a kind of escapism from futility. Christians here are called to put on put off and put on by having their minds renewed. Paul says the same thing in Romans 12, doesn't he? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We need to train our minds to be captivated by something better. Something superior. The truth as it is in Jesus needs to so consume our vision so that sin loses its appeal. That's what Paul means here by having 
a renewed mind. Do you remember in the Old Testament there was a time when the Israelites came into the promised land and Joshua said to all the people, when you get into promised land, I don't want you to nick anything because all the loot is a curse. We're going to gather it all together and it's going to be in the temple. The land is yours, but don't nick anything. There was a man called Achan. And they, anyway, they lost the next battle. And Joshua's like, God, what are you doing? You told us going to battle and now we're losing. And God said, there's dishonesty in the camp. Anyway, he came to Achan and he's there stood in front of everyone and he said to him, what have you done? And you can read the story in Joshua chapter 7. He said, I, I, was, I was just picking through the, the city and he says, I saw a beautiful robe. Not just a robe. Interest in that, a beautiful robe. He says, I saw some silk. No, he doesn't. He says, I saw 200 shekels of silk. What, what was he doing? Weighing it while no one was looking. And there was a wedge of gold. 50 shekels. 50 shekels of gold. What is going on in Achan's mind? He is seeing things and caressing them and turning them over in his mind. Wouldn't it be good if? His imagination is captivated by stuff. The beauty of it, the size of it. As soon as his imagination is captivated, he begins to covet what was not his. And he says, I took them and I hid them in my tent under the floor. He's forgotten in his mind that God has brought them out of Egypt. That God has showered his loving kindness on them. He's forgotten that God has given them a whole land flowing with milk and honey, as it says in the Bible, for their enjoyment. He's not mindful that this is the God who's given him everything. His mind is saying, it's not fair. Nobody will know. It's a beautiful robe, that. Could sell that on eBay. Might pay for all eBay to hear that. He's forgotten the one and become captivated by the other. To be made new in the attitude of your mind. Listen, when you are tossing and turning in bed at night, when I am, because someone during the day has ignored me, I can't believe, I can't believe what they did today. After all I've done for them, it's so unfair. I feel sometimes like I'm going to burst. I'm so wound up. Three o'clock in the morning, tossing and turning. What's going on? What has happened? I'm caressing and cherishing a grievance and have forgotten that God has not ignored me. It says in the scripture that God has engraved my name on the palms of his hand. And I'm tossing and turning because some person has ignored me during the day. I'm dwelling on that and I've forgotten that. The way to put things off 
and put good things on is to change the way you think. What does Paul pray in chapter 1? Oh, maybe we'll close with this. We're done. Just go with me to chapter 1. Here's the secret. This is why we've spent so long in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers. And here it is. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you what? A million pounds? No. Total respect? No. I keep asking that the God of our Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. When you forget that, you're in the dark. When you remember that, you're in the light. You can only put off and put on when your mind is renewed and you remember the things that Christ has done for you. Paul prays that they would know things. You'll never be motivated until you're captivated. Amen.